Welcome to Point Two Law Review. I'm John Brandt. And I'm Carson Messersmith. Oh, it's 2024. The future is here. I know. Another year. That's crazy. I know, right? We're already, I, I mean, we. it feels like we just jumped ahead the clock or back the clocks one or the other, and now all of a sudden we just fast forward to do another year. It's almost like every 364 and a quarter years or days, there's another year. That's true. Although as you get older, it feels like it's more like, you know, two weeks and then it's a new year. What? Okay. I'm, I'm not insignificantly older than you, but older than you. And you're right. <laughs> so, yeah. So maybe for you, it's like one week is a year oh, at that point. Oh, that's nice. That's nice. All right. Well, we're here. Uh, the snow is not here yet, uh, but it will be soon. Let's see what else is there. Anything else? I don't think so. It's been kind of a weird. It feels like we have lived in a snow globe here in central Nebraska for the last couple of days. It's just basically been, you know, foggy and white and everything is frosty. But, yeah, no snow right now. But everybody did have a white Christmas. Everybody did. Maybe that was the. And uh, we're going to probably we're over the hump, right? The days are getting longer. Yeah, Yeah. It's not dark while we're doing this on Friday afternoon. That's true. And we have some uh, Nebraska Supreme Court opinions. And should we get right into the ex parte summary? Go ahead, Carson. Okay, so we start with uh, Fountain 2 LLC versus Douglas County Board of Equalization. Um, green belt status. I have uh, Pinochar v. Rudolph et al. and Riparian Rights Boundary Dispute. State versus Turner last minute evidence. All right, that's it for the ex parte summary. Let's get right to it. Go ahead, Carson. All right, so we start with uh, Fountain versus Douglas County Board of Equalization. Um, and this is an appeal based on a uh, commercial real estate development company and uh, their dispute as to how a uh, property was classified and whether or not it was eligible for a special valuation as agricultural or horticultural land under Nebraska Revised Statute Section 77-1343 through uh, 77-1347. And that uh, valuation and and the point of the ex parte summary is basically known as the green belt status, which allows agricultural or uh, horticultural land to be valued um, at less than Uh, the um, appraised value. And so basically what's going on here is that uh, Fountain 2 was a subsidiary of R&R Realty Group uh, who purchased a 19.9 acre property in Douglas County with the ultimate intent to uh, develop this property. So they bought this property in 2016, um, but at the uh, time the property was bought and subsequently it was still uh, subject to a farm lease and was being uh, farmed. And basically what happens here is that in December of 2017, the Douglas County Assessor notified R&R that effective January 1 of 2018, the property was not going to be qualified for uh, greenbelt status because it was not being primarily used for agricultural or horticultural purposes. Um, and so this happened after a real estate specialist drove by the property and observed the Uh, property with surveyor stakes, neon flags, and grading of the property that he viewed as not consistent uh, with agriculture. At that point in time, R&R contacted the assessor's office about the notice um, and basically said that they were wanting to uh, protest this because they uh, were going to start building on the property, but it ran into problems with the planning board and were not planning on building at the time. Um, And so at that point in time, the real estate 
uh, specialist told R&R that they could either protest the disqualification to the county board or simply file a new application. And so R&R files a new application in May of 2018 uh, seeking to have the property uh, have that uh, status um, as agricultural horticultural land. Um, and so this goes through the County Board of Equalization and eventually to the Turk. And basically what the Turk finds is that uh, this property at the uh, time of the uh, filing, uh, which they said was um, uh, essentially the uh, time for re reclassification in their minds was the uh, June 15th uh, date, which was the last time. Uh, that the uh, county assessor was allowed to uh, reevaluate was when uh, they should look as to whether or not the property was uh, agricultural or horticultural or being used for those purposes. And so they found that it was not doing that because uh, this property in particular uh, was not planted to alfalfa until uh, September of uh, 2018. And so on appeal, um, and again, I, you know, I don't know how niche this case is, but this case uh, does raise issues of first impression regarding uh, the statutes that govern uh, the greenbelt status of uh, properties in Nebraska. And so essentially, uh, this reads like a law review article on uh, that section of uh, the Nebraska of the Nebraska statutes. And so uh, they deal with uh, what that greenbelt status is um, and what it means and what timeline we should be using uh, to classify the property. And the first thing that the Supreme Court finds uh, that the uh, Turk, failed uh, to do or erred um, in doing was using the uh, July 15th date for the uh, county assessor to approve or deny applications for greenbelt status as the date uh, for which the determination had to be made uh, for that greenbelt status. Um, the Supreme Court basically says that uh, the statute says that the January 1st date is what controls as to determining the status of a property. And so that is the date that we have to look at the property and decide uh, what was going on with the property and whether or not it's agricultural or horticultural on that date. And what they uh, find is that when looking at the January 1st date, the property in question uh, basically consisted of uh, agricultural stubble and uh, nothing else that would have been consistent with agricultural or horticultural use. And so therefore, as uh, of that January 1 date and not the uh, July 15th date, that property was agricultural in nature. And so uh, the Turks uh, decision did not uh, conform with the law in looking to that July 15th, the 2018 date. Um, and so therefore they had erred um, in using that and not uh, using the uh, January 1st date. Um, again, there was the, the interesting piece here is that there was so much testimony because it had gone through uh, multiple um, boards and then eventually the Turk that they had enough information uh, here to say what the property was at that time. And so therefore they could actually um, address the status of that property. Um, and so the Supreme Court here reversed and remanded uh, with instructions to reclassify that property uh, because of uh, the property's use on that January 1 date uh, rather than that July 15th uh, date. All right. This is uh Panochar v. Ruddolph at all. This is a boundary dispute involving riparian rights. Um, there's 
a piece of land up in Howard County, and on the left side there's a border with a stream on it, um, and there's the thread of the stream is where the um, border would be, and it can change over time. The issue here isn't where the, the line is as far as the stream or anything like that. The issue is whether the boundary that was on the original government sur survey had a riparian right uh, on the boundary, had a riparian boundary, or it was not a riparian boundary. So it, had, it, it was beyond where it ended up being much more complicated than that, right? I'm, I'm giving a very big overview, partly because this isn't my wheelhouse and I don't know a lot about it, but it is interesting if you do have something involving riparian rights or boundary disputes, you can take a look. Uh, the district court said that the um, original uh, plat did have a uh, riparian border on it, and so through summary judgment, said that that's what the border should be, and then the Nebraska Supreme Court, who picked up this case, affirmed it. There was an interesting little nugget here. Um, on appeal, the uh, appellants asked the uh, Nebraska Supreme Court to take judicial no notice of this plat from a government website that they had access to, which is not necessarily improper, right? You, uh, you can do... You can ask a court to take judicial notice at any stage of a proceeding, you know, citing a, a website that's publicly available for the court to take a look at, I suppose, is something the court could take judicial notice of. It's interesting, but the Nebraska Supreme Court here declined uh, to take judicial notice of uh, that, that website map. I assume that would help appellants. I don't know. I, I assume that's why you would want to direct the court's attention there. But here, uh, based on the record that was before the court, they affirm the summary judgment of the trial court. Okay, next case we come to is State versus Turner. This is an appeal, this is a direct appeal from the uh, district court for Douglas County after Turner was uh, convicted of first degree murder after a uh, jury trial and because of the uh, mandatory sentence of life in prison, this case uh, automatically moved to the Supreme Court's docket. And, you know, there's a couple of issues on appeal, but the big issue on appeal is that um, shortly before the trial date, the court had uh, scheduled a hearing at which time the state orally moved to continue the trial uh, based on the fact that um, the state had found out uh, the prior afternoon that the Omaha Police Department had uh, seized a cell phone that had um, or that a cell phone had been seized at or around the time of the uh, 2013 shooting and that the cell phone had uh, belonged to uh, the defendant. And uh, here they basically said that they had not been made aware that the uh, cell phone had been seized because it was seized in a separate investigation um, and that they had not been made aware of it until the uh, day prior. And so because of the fact that they had uh, discovered that at the very last minute, they argued that they needed additional time to analyze the cell phone um, and that, you know, the cell phone could include um, inculpatory evidence or exculpatory evidence. Um, and so uh, therefore they needed to uh, have that. And so they they say that there was a lengthy, lengthy exchange on the record. Um, and then uh, after uh, consideration, the court sustained uh, that motion. So um, later on, uh, prior to the trial, the state disclosed uh, the general contents of the cell phone. Um, it had a re redacted affidavit and a search warrant used to obtain it, and then um, law enforcement reports uh, regarding it. And so um, 
basically at that point in time, uh, Turner had conceded that the state had disclosed the materials um, and the court received uh, that as exhibit as exhibit uh, two. And so uh, after that disclosure, Turner did not ask for any more continuances or a motion to suppress the evidence that had came out from the phone. Um, and a jury trial was uh, conducted that resulted in the uh, conviction. And so there's quite a bit of evidence that goes into all of the testimony that was re- that related to Turner's conviction, the things that were found, um, and an eventual uh, finding of what is presumed to be the murder weapon. And things of that nature. But again, the big issue on appeal here was uh, this last minute continuance and disclosure of information. And so uh, Turner argues that uh, basically uh, the disclosure of the cell phone and uh, the admission at trial had violated his constitutional rights to uh, due process because of the timing of the disclosure. And um, the Supreme Court here finds that neither the timing nor the admission had violated uh, his rights to uh, due process, basically because the evidence here was disclosed uh, before trial. And so uh, any of the evidence had to be disclosed at least at the time of trial. Um, And and here the evidence had been disclosed before trial. Uh, The defense had had the opportunity to uh, cross-examine this evidence and then had the opportunity to potentially even seek a continuance on their own uh, to review this evidence had they chose to, um, and they did not. And so basically, again, they found that uh, this was not uh, violative of uh, his uh, right to due process. And so um, the other part that they uh, go in to address is um, the fact that the uh, defense had not asked for a continuance and didn't get um, a continuance. And so um, what the Supreme Court says here is that, you know, basically you can't say that you didn't have an opportunity to uh, review evidence or that this evidence was prejudicial and then um, not explain how um, a continuance would not have uh, cured any prejudice that you would have had. So basically, uh, you know, saying here that, you know, if you had issues with the evidence or the evidence that was presented, not having an adequate opportunity to review that, uh, you know, you basically had to take an affirmative step in asking for a continuance or asking the court for more, op- more time, um, an opportunity to review that evidence uh, in order to get any kind of relief Um, on appeal. And so again, kind of a unique issue with having that last minute disclosure of evidence and maybe some of the steps uh, basically saying that you can't now ask for remedial actions um, and saying that you didn't get to review evidence that you could have had the opportunity to review had you simply asked the court uh, for that opportunity. And, you know, absent any objection or any kind of of a a suppression, it's kind of hard to find that that evidence uh, was prejudicial against you. Um, And so then they went into sufficiency of evidence and then um, also, uh, ineffective assistance of counsel dealt with those fairly summarily and eventually um, affirmed the uh, ruling of the district court. All right, that's it for Nebraska Supreme Court. I think we have Court of Appeals, and I think that's back to you. Yeah, so we jump straight back to me, and we start uh, with a case called State v. Yates, which is a pro se appeal from the district court of Cass County um, appealing Uh, the denial of a post-conviction relief without an evidentiary hearing and basically saying that uh, the court was imposing a higher burden of proof um, than what is contained in the governing statute. And this is kind of an interesting opinion because basically what Yates is saying uh, is that uh, after a motion for post-conviction relief, you should essentially be entitled 
uh, to an evidentiary hearing as a uh, matter of law. But what the Court of Appeals goes through uh, and demonstrates is that a hearing is not uh, required if the court is satisfied that the petitioner is not entitled uh, to any kind of a relief. And so um, what the what Yates had essentially uh, tried to tried to say um, is that once a um, petitioner has uh, noticed a uh, post-conviction relief action that they uh, have met their prerequisites to an evidentiary hearing and therefore should uh, have that evidentiary hearing. Uh, but the Court of Appeals goes on to say that that is not in the spirit um, of the statutes and that because of those sections uh, require, requiring a finding uh, that there will be uh, potentially some kind of a relief uh, that can be allowed you uh, essentially are not automatically entitled uh, to an evidentiary uh, hearing. And so, uh, you know, again, it's a, it's a fairly uh, narrow opinion, a fairly short opinion, but I think it basically what it's doing is uh, clarifying exactly what the Nebraska Post-Conviction Relief Act is there for um, and the specific, uh, specific findings uh, that once again must be made uh, before allowing for an evidentiary hearing. So that opinion was affirmed. I have Krieger v. Tewitt. This is a paternity complaint uh, action, and I'll get to why that is a called a com- paternity complaint action. And that was filed in 2017. They had a trial in 2019, and uh, instead of having the trial, they got on the stand and they entered into a stipulation on the record, and they said, uh, "This is what we agree to. Everybody agrees to it." And the judge said, I approve. Uh, this is a great agreement. And who's going to do the decree? Oh, you're going to do the decree. Uh, please get it to me. Cut to 2022 when nobody provided a decree to the court. They have a hearing and they noticed that there was no decree. I think there was a new judge at this time. And the uh, parties, they had a hearing on it. Court's like, well, why why is there no decree? Why didn't we get this done? And the parties kind of blame each other. They were trying to exp- exchange income information and it never got exchanged or it's, people didn't like what the other person had. So that was, uh, you know basically three years. Oh, there was a pandemic in there too. So let's give them some credit. But there was uh, three years in there where they didn't get the decree done. So the court just says, hey, I'm going to set it for trial. Uh, We don't have a decree. We don't have anything to modify uh, because there wasn't a prior decree. So let's just set it for a trial on the original complaint. Sets it for a trial on the original complaint. And then the parties end up agreeing to a stipulated trial. And they say, we'll rely on that agreement that we had in 2019. All we want to do is make an argument on the child support. So they uh, each testify that, yes, this was our previous agreement. And this is what we had for child support at that time. So the child support amount was supposed to be based on the 2019 uh, income. Well, the father starts talking about recent income of the mother, and it goes beyond the agreement, and then the mother objects. The court um, admonished and said, hey, you know, we're not, we're not going to get into any subsequent income or income issues because we're going to be stuck to the record that was before. We're just supposed to be making argument anyway. Ultimately, uh, the court entered a decree that was remarkably consistent with the 2019 agreement that was had on the record. And the father appealed, and the one of the basis for the appeal was the recent income and the procedure that was uh, em- employed by the trial court by simply not allowing prior evidence, or excuse me, not allowing subsequent evidence, and just uh, focusing on the uh, original issue. The court of appeals here correctly notes that the father agreed to that procedure um, to 
just argue uh, about child support and enter in the prior agreement. And they affirmed the uh, trial court's uh, prior order, basically uh, my, um, finally ordering the 2019 order. So the 2024 uh, order here from the Nebraska Court of Appeals finally resolves the 2017 paternity complaint. Okay, next case we come to is State versus Williams. This is an appeal from a conviction of first-degree sexual assault of a child, incest of the victim under 18 years of age, and third-degree sexual assault on a child after a jury trial in uh, Douglas County, uh, whereby uh, Mr. Williams was sentenced to, um, I believe it was multiple counts, and I believe one of them was, um, you know, the sentences were 40 to 45 years on count one, um, 15 to 20 years on count two and two to three years on count three. Um, And basically the big issues on appeal are uh, in regards to statements made uh, by the um, mother uh, during her testimony um, in regards to one uh, allegations of uh, potentially physical abuse uh, that was outside of uh, what was being uh, on trial here. And then the, uh, Second mistrial uh, or motion for mistrial uh, was in regards to statements of uh, the fact that the mother was aware of some kind of um, physical abuse that was happening. And so on the uh, first motion for uh, mistrial, basically uh, what the defendant is arguing is uh, that there was improper um, uh, bolstering in regards to uh, the Uh, statements of uh, the victim. Um, And what the Court of Appeals here says is that the only statement that the mother made was uh, the phrase opening up. Um, And they did not find uh, that that amounts to credibility or uh, bolstering. And so I guess that's kind of an interesting tidbit uh, of law is that uh, the Court of Appeals here found that uh, a statement of someone opening up to you uh, or opening up about something is uh, not amounting to uh, credibility or bolstering uh, of that person's testimony. And then the other uh, thing that they argue is that uh, the testimony of the mother um, conflated or, or amounted to actual pre- prejudice because it conflated uh, the sexual abuse charges that were at issue with allegations of uh, child abuse, which was an opinion in State versus uh, Roca from 2013 uh, in or by the Nebraska Supreme Court. And basically what they say here is that uh, that is not um, what is uh, happening in this case. Um, And the fact that he's relying exclusively on um, this opinion is misplaced because of the fact that uh, in this uh, situation, the defendant was not charged uh, with child abuse. And so um, there was no commingling of charges uh, at issue. It was simply... um, her making statements uh, in regards to uh, something that had happened uh, to the uh, child without having those charges uh, joined at the same time. Um, And then they also found that even if there was an issue, there was no actual prejudice because uh, the uh, court had um, 
had uh, not abused its discretion had not abused its discretion in finding uh, that the uh, potential prejudice inflicted by uh, the insertion of inadmissible character evidence was um, you know so damning as having to uh, grant that mistrial and so they did not find uh, an abuse of discretion in denying uh, that first mistrial and then as to the second mistrial and this one was actually kind of interesting um, basically what what the court says here is that um, the district court had given trial counsel the opportunity uh, to have a um, admonishment of the jury happen in regards to the statements that were made uh, that led to the second motion for a mistrial. But the trial counsel had uh, essentially said, no, uh, I don't want you to admonish uh, the jury, because that's just going to draw uh, more attention to this issue and make it uh, more of a thing that it already is. Um, and so therefore, uh, there was no admonishment from the district court. And basically what the Court of Appeals says, is you don't get two bites at the apple. So you had the opportunity uh, to request this admonishment or have a limiting instruction, and you didn't do that. Um, and so because you've done that, you now don't uh, get to take the risk um, and now ask that we reverse this based on um, a mistrial issue. The uh, final uh, primary error is that there were a couple of leading, uh, leading questions that were uh, objected to. And again, there was kind of an uh, interesting uh, tidbits of law here in regards to uh, direct examination and leading questions. But basically what uh, the Court of Appeals found was that uh, there may have been an error in overruling an objection in regards to a leading question, but that question was never actually substantively answered, um, and so there could be no error there. And then um, there was a question that was presented, which I, I think it was kind of interesting uh, based on the question that they posed, uh, that they said though, that even though it was uh, narrow in scope, it did not uh, presuppose an answer, and so therefore uh, it was not leading um, to uh, testimony that would make it a leading question. And so uh, a couple of interesting tidbits and discussion in regards to uh, leading questions during a, a direct examination uh, that were uh, fairly interesting there. Uh, but the Court of Appeals, um, in summation, affirmed. Well, there you go. That is uh, State v. Brandon v. Richard L. That's where we're at now. This is a pro se complaint to modify child support. The father here was with the Nebraska Department of Corrections and has been since 1996. Uh, shortly thereafter, there was a paternity and child support case established, and he had uh, an obligation of minimal support, which, you know, he, he wasn't able to pay very much, and uh, except when he received a stimulus payment uh, for the pandemic, um, and that was around $1,800 when you take the 1200 plus the 600 you get $1,800, and in 2021, HHS got wind of the stimulus payment that was going to him, and they said that, well, you got to apply that to your child support arrearage, and he uh, took issue with that and filed a complaint to you know, take exception to the child support, or wait, he didn't take exception, but he did file the appeal from the exception that was, uh, or from the uh, district court finding that the arrear or excuse me that the stimulus payments could be applied towards the arrearage now the important thing here is the child is an adult now so the only the arrearage remains and any interest that was gained on the arrearage has nothing to do with current child support so there is here for whatever value uh, there is to this case there's a good discussion 
of the stimulus payments and what those ultimately needed to be and how those need to be treated. And it, it goes through a lot of uh, the federal law regarding that and how it's been interpreted in other jurisdictions. So there's you know two or three pages on how the CARES Act and, and other acts should be applied at the state level and, and their application to child support. So if you're in the child support world and you still have a case where uh, the stimulus payment is an, a big issue, uh, this might be of value. Otherwise, the district court was affirmed for ordering that the stimulus payment should be applied towards the arrearage. Okay, next case we come to is uh, an appeal from a denial of post-conviction relief in uh, two separate cases. Um, and basically, uh, the issue for post-conviction relief is that uh, the district court had erred in uh, denying him an evidentiary hearing uh, based on his um, assertions that trial counsel was deficient and failing to properly communicate the details of a negotiated plea agreement. Um, basically what happens here is that the uh, record refutes this based on uh, what was um, done at the time of the entry of plea and uh, then sentencing on the record um, and the discussion that happened between uh, the defendant and the court. And so the uh, Court of Appeals affirmed. All right, and I think I got mixed up. This should have been the previous one, but anyway, this is the state of Mayberry v. Mayberry, and um, what happened here was the, um, it's uh, obviously an estate. They have Terry uh, Mayberry, who was the, uh, you know, original person who passed away, and they had two sons, Robert and Vernon. Vernon passed away uh, three weeks after Terry, and in that between time, uh, the brothers, Robert and Vernon, said that they came up with, well, Robert claims they came up with an agreement that uh, through personal representative deeds, they were going to resolve this estate and make it more equal. Um, and then Vernon passed away, and the only evidence of this agreement they had are the deeds. And so that's what Robert is now claiming, that those deeds uh, on their own are evidence of the agreement, and the agreement should be enforced, not the terms of the will. And the uh, estate distribution issues galore in this. It's, it's fairly convoluted. Um, there's issues of undue influence. And uh, there's certainly the wife of Vernon, the gentleman who passed away, the brother who passed away, um, has uh, evidence of the undue influence and how those should be applied. There was some interesting language here that I, I thought was a little bit poetic, so I'll just read that real quick. From the morass that is the evidentiary record, what is clear is that the various deeds attached to the application were not identical to those offered during the hearing. Thus, as part of the application, they did not comport to the rule. Pleadings are to frame the issues upon which a cause is to be tried and advise the adversary as to what he must meet. Now that's quoting the trial court. The uh, Court of Appeals here found different grounds for uh, affirming um, and denying their ability to say that there was no notice. Ultimately, the trial court said, hey, the PR deeds that you entered don't evidence an agreement. There's no meeting of the minds. We can't show any of that. So we're going to go by what the will is. And then that was appealed, and the Court of Appeals affirmed the uh, focus on the will instead of those deeds. Okay, next case we come to is Smith versus Greenwald, which is an appeal from an order of modification 
entered by the district court in Douglas County in a paternity action between uh, Karen and Dustin uh, Greenwald. And basically what happens here is that the uh, court or the court of appeals affirms uh, the child support obligations um, or the custody and attorney's fees, but modifies the child support obligations. Um, and basically what they deal with here is the fact uh, that the uh, child support modifications did not uh, take into account uh, the fact that um, the wife in this case uh, had retirement that was automatically coming out and then um, health insurance benefits that were automatically coming out. And so uh, the plain error was identified on the uh, child support calculator um, that was uh, corrected by the Court of Appeals. Interestingly enough, here they uh, actually just attach the uh, child support calculation to the opinion um, and uh, remand, or I guess I should say uh, just affirm as modified uh, with that different child support calculation. So uh, kind of interesting. I don't know that I have... Um, or at least can remember an opinion where they just attached the uh, new it, child support. It does kind of cut to the so, chase. Yeah, uh, <laughs> this like, is how. Hey, this is what's supposed to be here. We're just going to do our own. But all right, anything else? Nope, that's it. All right, that's it for this week. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Point to Law Review. Uh, we're going to keep doing it uh, until one of us decides to strangle the other, which could be any day. That's true. I mean, I guess you, <laughs> you never know what could happen. At uh, this time of year, the weather, you're, in, you know, you're indoors a lot. It's dark outside. All work Sometimes and no play. Yeah. That <laughs> makes John a doll boy. I know. There you go. Okay. Well, that's it for this week. Uh, this is Point to Law Review. We have uh, this law firm has offices in Kearney, Holdridge, and Minden. And, uh, ooh, there might be an announcement next week. You think? I don't know. I don't know either. We'll see. We'll see if there's an announcement. Uh, go back to episode one for the disclaimer, like I said. And have a great week, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everybody.